Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six oh, and a half years. I'd say it to you, face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you surely man? <laughs> It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. Oh, my David, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy here. Hello, Daryl. Hi, Owen. Why aren't you as excited as I am? I've got group oh, team. I, 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 your excitement, you sucked all the excitement in the room into yourself. Oh, there. I was too excited. I felt I had to balance that by... Yeah. Know. Just we had to right, be the silver, right, okay, silver yeah. yin to your raging yang. Well, I've got oh. Group D of the Euro 2016 qualifiers in front of me. I have okay. every reason to be excited here. It looks really... It's the best thing I've read in a long time, Ken. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've, I've read the Roy Keane book. Yeah. Uh, gone girl. <laughs> it's a gone girl of a qualifying table after three games. Ireland, joint top, three games played. Seven points accrued. Mm. Go with. Accrued, of course. Ten goals scored. Mm. Two conceded. Two conceded, that's amazing. Only two conceded by our guest on our other show we're putting it later on today, David Ford. I should actually mention that right. So tell me we're going to qualify for France again. I can't tell you that yet, Owen. Tell me we're going to. seven more games in this group. Tell me we're going to get a result in Scotland again. There will be a result of the game. I'm <laughs> sure that the game will finish with a result. We'll be handed a result or we'll go and get um, one. Yeah, I mean, and it's been great so far. I mean, two games have uh, we've scored in the last minute and one of them, the other one, we've won 7-0. So this has quite, been quite enjoyable, really, yeah. uh, these Ireland matches. And all of a sudden the Ireland, or the Scotland-Ireland game you know, he's appearing on the edge of the horizon. This late goal... It's, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be one of the best sporting events of the last 10 years. We'd all yeah. like to see uh, cohesive football, uh, ideally pretty attacking football at times. And we haven't necessarily had, had that in the two key games in the group for large parts. But you did mention late goals there. And mm. when a team gets on a streak of scoring late goals, it could be different at international level now. But Roy Keane certainly... And Martin O'Neill, I think, as well, at times in his career, have had these teams who score late goals. It happened for Keane all the time in his good days at Sunderland. If, yeah. we, if we just have that habit, if we make sure we're within range of teams, <laughs> we're going to be guaranteed a goal in the last minute, and that'll do yeah, the job. The, the, the weird thing is, a lot of times when you see teams getting late goals or uh, you know managing to eke out results that seem to be beyond them, you kind of think, right, well, what what is it that's created the team spirit? But it's 
I kind of think it's a real chicken and egg type situation. If you get a late goal against Georgia and you turn uh, one point into three points, that becomes the thing that creates the team spirit and the belief to yeah, actually yeah. go and do it again. So you, you, and I'm not saying to, I'm not lessening the impact of O'Neill or Keane. As you say, they've done it in the past individually. They're doing it now, it seems, as a managerial team. But the best way to make that happen is for it to happen once and really take that belief into the next game. And that's maybe a bit of what we saw on, on Tuesday night. Which, However they get to, they, they got to this situation, we're happy because we spent 10 years drawing games or winning games and then throwing away really annoying late goals. Yeah, That was the story of the entire first decade of this new millennium. Let's get into this in Ken Early's Report on Sport. But the thing that we need to remember is that we're going to be playing against Scotland. Martin O'Neill remembers that. Martin O'Neill and Gordon Strachan, the two former Celtic managers... And standing on the sideline at Celtic Park, Martin O'Neill more popular than Gordon Strachan at Celtic Park. I don't know if that is going to be a decisive influence in the game, but what Martin O'Neill is pointing out is that Scotland are actually playing pretty well at the moment. That this is Scotland's best run of form, really, for probably since they qualified for the 98 World Cup. Um, so you've got two runaway trains, uh, <laughs> one green and one navy careening towards each other right now and uh, we're going to find out what happens on the evening of November 14th. Uh, More than likely the engines just get the grill at the front sort of caught in between each other. Yeah. The train version of a one-all draw. If they snarl together a little bit and yeah <laughs> that might be uh, what happens. But uh, I mean the game on uh, on Tuesday was, was incredible. I mean I assumed I think like everybody that once we were one nil down that was going to be the end of us. Because Germany would be able to score a second goal, that this was this would be the more likely thing to happen rather than us actually scoring. But Germany played quite badly, and I mean, I suppose you have to take into account the fact that this wasn't really the same Germany team that had won the World Cup. Um, there were six players out of the fourteen who played in the World Cup final actually involved in the game against Ireland. Um, so you're talking about a completely different side, um, one that didn't really have any of the same um, any of the same threat. Um, well, that's some of the same threat. They had the guy who scored the winning goal in the World Cup final. Mm. And it did have a few of the other players there. I yeah. think we're all a bit surprised by how... Maybe now isn't the day to be carping about the, the Germans, but this amazing system that they've created and all these players, and yet there's no depth. There doesn't look to be a massive amount of depth to it. They have a few injuries, and like any other team in world sport, they're kind of screwed. Yeah, it turns out that... <laughs> yeah, you can talk quite a lot about your system and your production of players, but actually... You know, you really notice it when your really world-class players are missing. It doesn't matter who yeah. you are. I mean, Martin O'Neill did point out beforehand that we were missing Coleman and uh, McCarthy. And this is what he's saying now is it's desperately important for them to be fit for the uh, game against Scotland. Yogi Love made a passing reference to Seamus Coleman being one of the best defenders in Europe, I saw. I think it was after the game. Yeah. They were also missing one of their one of their best defenders, one of the, uh, missing some players including one of the best defenders in Europe. Unless I just I think I it was Mar- that I think post. it was Martin O'Neill who said that. Oh. <laughs> I don't think Yogi Love said that. I'd be amazed if he had. Yeah, that does make a bit more sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, allow me to furiously no. google some stuff yeah. here again. If Yogi, Yogi Love says the rest. Just in case any of you were thinking of giving me too much credit for for getting this one all draw. <laughs> remember that Ireland were weakened by the absence of one of the best defenders in Europe. Uh, maybe he did say that, but it didn't seem like the kind of the mood that Yogi Love was in afterwards mm. didn't seem good. The image of him shaking hands with Martin O'Neill and refusing to make eye contact with him was one of the more 
pleasant experiences of the television experience of watching it on Tuesday night. He was he was a little bit sickened, I think, for Yogi. But he, he opened himself up to criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, he the team has started badly. I mean, he uh, didn't even fill the bench. And I just, I was surprised by that because it seems it seems a little bit arrogant to do that. I mean, I'm not saying that this was this was an important thing. I'm sure he would have liked to have more a greater range of substitutes, um, uh, as the way that the match had panned out. You know, Germany. It wasn't as easy for Germany previously when they played us. They'd scored early, and the match was never in doubt. Uh, you know, it was it was just a kickabout for them. On this occasion, even though they were leading in, in the closing stages, it was still it was still only a one goal game. So. I'm sure he was look. He was looking at them, thinking he didn't expect that situation clearly, um, and he didn't plan for it. No. And in not planning for it, he opens himself up to to criticism, and it is a little bit arrogant. Whether whether or not it was important, it's it's complacent from him. He was a little bit cold to Martin O'Neill afterwards as well, wasn't he? O'Neill was just patronising him a small bit as the winning manager is well, the winning manager, the manager with the moral victory is always going to do. Yeah, well done, hard luck. Your boys did great, and love is like. Politely but firmly. Well done on the point, Yogi. Moving away from the you know, race. Lucky, uh, lucky young Hulhin didn't manage to, mm. to score it this that way, Yogi. One. That's one point closer. To oh, no, I'm, See you there, no, I'm absolutely delighted that Wes Hulhin's goal didn't go in because we might well have lost the game then. Oh, there was time have. for Germany to come back, and the reason Germany's stats looked so amazing against Poland I was watching the game was because they were losing. If, mm. if, if they were losing at any stage, whatever. Okay, sure, they had to get their one nil one nil lead, and you need to play with urgency to do that. But a team is going to play, especially a team of Germany's stature, is going to play with a lot more urgency once they actually yeah. concede one, you know? Well, it is. I mean, certainly possession, if you if you concede a goal, typically it means your possession goes up by about 10%. Right. Um, not, by which I mean 10% out of the 100%, which is usually, it's more than, uh, you know, your possession might go from 50 to 60% of the game. You know, that's a quite typical effect of Enough conceding for your a goal. Enough for your, your money ball. <laughs> <laughs> you started to get extremely confused there. I'm glad that you managed to dig yourself out of the hole before. Well, no, I mean, I wasn't. I mean, that would mean. I mean, it would mean your possession had increased by twenty percent, but it was ten percent. You know, if you understand from fifty to sixty, no, it's twenty percent increase, no, but it's ten percent. We're, we're all there. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter ultimately uh, in terms of whether you're more likely to win or not. It doesn't actually matter. So you're feeling good, Ken. Um, feeling good about Martin O'Neill positivity. Telling well, the lads not to go out and lose by uh, go out and lose by six if he's need to. Uh, to be honest, I I I don't understand. Well, we have to attack them. Look, I mean, the the question well, the question that I would have is why is it always assumed that a player who do, who doesn't have talent is more reliable? Why is that? And like sense? a talented guy must be unreliable. He must be a soft. Touch. Oh, Wes. Oh, how, how did you know I was talking about him, Owen? But yeah, I am talking about him. <laughs> yeah, I am talking about him. I mean, I, I just I don't about, get about it. Don't. But yes, you're correct. Yeah, well, I mean, it's obvious who I'm talking about. You know, when I talk about a talented player in the Ireland squad, everyone, oh, you mean Wes? Yeah. Well, McGeady. <laughs> McGeady's a talented player in the Ireland squad. So, I'm sorry, there are a lot of talented players, but if you're talking about silky talent, yeah. McGeady's another one. The kind of talent which, for some reason, um, managers tend to go, nah, I'd rather have a less talented guy. Because it seems as though the less talented you are, the more reliable it's assumed you are as a, as a foot soldier. There is a talent. As a scrapper. As you know a what you get. But I don't, I don't even see that. I mean, number one, there's the obvious thing of of a player who who can pass the ball. I'm not saying Hulahan did particularly well when he came on because you could see that he was clearly nervous. It reminded me a bit of what Trap used to do sometimes with a player he didn't fancy. Oh, stick him on there in the you know the last 15 minutes of a game. Uh, you know, in fairness, the the occasion was was big. It was kind of 
okay, this is a big game. You know, if you do something out there, it's really going to count. You know, Trapattoni probably wouldn't even have done that. Mm-hmm. But you know, sometimes if he didn't fancy a player, he would he would put him in a difficult situation, and then point to his failure as evidence of. I, uh, I was right. There's no comparison to this, no Ken. I mean, Wes Hoolan was given a, enough time to make an impact on a huge game yeah. in Europe. I don't think it's. And, and I, he I, did. I, I don't buy into the impact into the idea that he, his confidence has been drained. This is one of the points that Eamon Dunphy was making the other night that his confidence has been drained by uh, the manager. I don't think the, the guy's in there. He's been given a shot. It's not as though I mean the manager is hugely complimentary about him where he can be, and has given him more of a shot than Trapattoni did. Yeah. So, well, Trapattoni should have given him yeah. way more of a shot. You know? like, it's not like you know, I'd feel sorry for Shane Long who's sitting on the bench for both of those games mm. where he could. He's got some problems. Yeah, he could have possibly added a couple of goals to his international tally against Gibraltar. Uh, he could have had some sort of an impact against Germany. I don't feel sorry too sorry for Wes. You know, he was in. He was out there at least. It is an interesting one looking back at that Shane Long call against Gibraltar. With Daryl Murphy. Oh yeah, but as soon as those guys came on, it was there, there seemed to be this idea that um, maybe he was being rested for the, the game. But if you were going to play Shane Long against Germany, you would have given him twenty minutes against Pharaohs to get his eye in. It was a bad yeah. sign for Long as soon as that happened. Yeah, yeah, it really was. But you know, I, I, again, I, I think I think in this situation, uh, say if if you have this idea that that you can't play both Wes Hoodland and Robbie Keane because they don't offer enough in a physical sense, they're both. Over thirty, well, over thirty. In Robbie Keane's case, they don't they they don't really give you speed, you know. Um, I mean, I think West Hulan moves the ball quickly, um, but if you can't play them both, I would always play Hulan. I mean, we saw Robbie Keane again. He's he can't get into Are these you, games. You're talking about in the big games against yeah. the top teams. You'd still play Robbie Shirley against Robbie Keane. No, I wouldn't against Minnows. No, it's it's a ma- it's a magical thinking. It's literally thinking this guy. He's like our lucky charm. Well, no, it's not a lucky charm. He's what about the goal if we? Scorer. What about if he's a goal scorer because no one else gets to play because he's played. So you're saying there are other players there who have anywhere near the capability of scoring the sort of goals that Robbie scores. You've got a team. chances from Irish strikers. You've got a team full of ten, four or five ten years. players. You know they can all score. John O'Shea was the one who scored the other night. Ah, can Robbie Keane did not go and did not touch the ball anywhere. Yeah, anywhere near well, which is why I'm not arguing necessarily that he should have started against Germany, but. He's just scored a hat-trick against the Faroe Islands, so you can't against say Gibraltar. he against Gibraltar. Sorry, Gibraltar so are, are a part-time team. Yeah. You know, Owen, you would have a he's, reasonable chance he's of scoring a goal in that game. And, and he's continued to score them even towards the end of his career. He's had a couple of droughts here and there, as you're going to have. I, I really don't buy the idea that Robbie can't play the games against the lesser teams. Whatever. Oh, no, he, absolutely he can play And who are games. the lesser teams? It's only really Gibraltar and Georgia, because all the other games are highly competitive. And the Georgia one is... The Georgia one is a tricky kind of game at home that I think Robbie Keane should probably play in and might yeah. score a goal in. I would play him in that game. But well. oh, so you would, so you would still I'd play, play him in against Georgia. Games, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, then we're, but, what but, are we arguing about? But, uh, against Scotland away, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe not. Then again, I don't, you know, maybe the he is. In fairness, he's the one thing about Robbie Keane is that he's on a great run of form at the moment in Major League Soccer. Oh yeah! Every time I turn I mean, on, the, every time I switch on the internet, Ken, I'm he's seeing just, clips of him he's banging just, goals. Just so dominant in that league, it's amazing, you know. And it's not a—it's a league which, in profile, is somewhat similar to the SPL, in that you've got a lot of young, fit, not very talented players. I mean, I'm not saying there are no talented players in Major League Soccer. I'm just saying that you know the level is not—it's not a Premier League level. But I don't think, in terms of uh, fitness, that it's lacking anything. You know, I think you've got. I think I think it's uh, it's got like a high a high, you know it's a high level league in terms of sports science in terms of training in terms of athleticism. Um, it just 
it's a slowly developing football culture that hasn't really produced that many technically brilliant players yet. Robbie Keane uh, looks absolutely outstanding in that company. Maybe there's something to be said that, you know, maybe the Scottish players are on a similar... Maybe there's something of the MLS about Scotland. <laughs> I hope no Scottish people hear me say that. Yeah, I think... Um, Oof. Well, I think the... Uh, I'm sure we have some Scottish listeners. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure they're not going to like that. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean, to, I don't mean to say that. It's just, you know, maybe SPL, MLS, Robbie Keane... Maybe it is his level. Although I, I think of the Scottish game. But a lot of those Scottish I think of the Scotland away game as a difficult game. Play in the Premier League. I think I think of it as a difficult game. It is, yeah. Which is going to be very difficult, tough for Ireland. I think it's one where you need eleven players. You can't have ten players and a kind of a and a lucky charm. Good news for Robbie Keane over in America. He's is he speaking to the MLS again. He's according to this MLS website I'm reading. He's still number one in the rankings for uh, for MVP this year. Yeah, he's. Hasn't been overtaken by Obafemi Martins is the guy who seems to be getting a lot of love as well. But the people here are saying that um, that Robbie's still the man. I think he was annoyed they didn't get it last year. It was put to him a while back, and he said, like, oh, "Don't talk to me about that." You know, I don't know. I think Robbie feels, seems to feel that maybe he should have been the MVP by now, but he hasn't been. Do you want to talk about something besides Ireland? Because we are going to get back onto it with Emmett and Dion in a few minutes' time. You've been reading the Pep Guardiola um, extracts. Yeah, Pep Guardiola. Okay, so Marty Perrineau is the name of the journalist who. Um, went over to Munich with Guardiola and spent the season with him and has uh, has got a lot of access, behind-the-scenes access, um, and has now produced a book, uh, which is going to be published. I don't actually have a publication date in front of me, but it's this Sorry. month. It's this month at some stage by Backpage Press, uh, who, have, who have published a few of the, um, you know, say the Pirlo autobiography, which, you know, they got that translated into English and published it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I've been reading a couple of these extracts, and I'm not quite sure what to think yet. You can't, it's difficult to judge a book on the basis of extracts. It's clearly good that we have a document like this. It's interesting to get a sort of a sense of, of what Guardiola is doing and to hear more of the details about what was happening in, at these various moments during last season. I mean, the big moments were they went to Manchester City, played what they hailed themselves as the perfect game. <laughs> it was amazing. A fiesta for the eyes, said Karl Heinz Rummenigge. Um, there was a three-minute spell of, you know, Byron. You, you might have seen it. On the, the Byron basically kept the ball for three minutes, just passing it around Manchester City. Pretty demoralizing to have that happen to you, you know, if you're Manchester City. Um, 94 passes, 18 from Kroos, 14 from Robin, 13 from Schweinsteiger, 12 from Ribéry. You know, every single Byron player is involved in this sequence of 94 passes, which just is running Manchester City off the field. Pep... Um, Pep comes on to you know comes through. What a performance! What a display! What a display! You know he's just this is incredible, and everyone's hating him as the greatest. Um, and then the then the big the other big moment in the season is the four 0 against Real Madrid, mm-hmm. where they lose four 0 Um, now what I'd say is that the tone of these extracts is extremely um, wow, Pep, <laughs> wow, Pep Guardiola. You know, is really amazing. Maybe that was the price of getting the uh, getting the access. It's you know? interesting. Cause I do like these books. The most famous one that I can think of is John Feinstein's Season on the Brink, yeah. where he's there with the legendary Indiana college basketball coach. That's Bob Knight, isn't that his name? Yeah. Bobby Knight, yeah. Who is unbelievable, has unbelievable, he sounds actually a lot like Alex Ferguson. 
unbelievably loyal to guys who've left him. Really hard taskmaster. Gets just an amazing coach, but very dominant personality and very, in fact, a bullying personality yeah. in a lot of ways. So, and that's really that's painted in vivid color in this book. It's just it's a really layered portrait of a guy. Doesn't sound like we're well. We don't know. We've only got extracts so far, but you're saying this one's a bit more. It's just. I think the idea here would be that if the person in question is still talking to the author by the end of it, probably <laughs> not. Very yeah, good I don't book. know. I don't know if Bob Knight liked it. I'd John say. Hansen, I'd say Pep and Marty Parnell probably still. They may be having lunch together at this exact moment. <laughs> I mean, that's just a couple of examples here, if if you don't mind, Don. Um, Byron uh, Byron against Chelsea Super Cup. Remember this? Uh, it was start of last season. Bayern won on penalties. Um, they've Bayern equalised late in the in extra time, so they go on to penalties in the middle of the euphoria. Pep steps up to the plate, emotional but icily calm. He calls his people together in one big huddle. Blah blah. Here, this is Pep at his brilliant best. The guy who rises to the big occasions and dazzles his man, just as everyone is expecting him to mobilise his players with a call to arms of epic proportions. Pep tells them a simple story, relaxed and smiling. He pays no heed to the thousands of frenzy supporters around them, apparently unaffected by the tension. I mean, how many times can you say the same thing? He issues no battle cry. You just said that two sentences ago. <laughs> Opting instead for an anecdote about water polo. <laughs> Lads, I don't know how to take penalties myself. I've never taken one in my life. But here's the best penalty taker in the whole world. And he points to a figure half hidden right at the back of the huddle. I'm talking about Manny, a Manel. Estiarte, Manel Estiarte is one of the backroom stuff. He was the best water polo player in the world. He took penalties better than anyone. Hundreds of them. Water polo is like football. Only four out of every five penalty kicks hit the target. But Manel put them all away. He is the world expert on penalties. Pep hasn't just managed to get the players' attention. He has completely changed the expressions on their faces. They had been waiting for war cries and motivational artery. Yeah, you said that twice now! <laughs> An adrenaline boost. What they receive standing here in the midst of the clamoring, heaving mess of humanity that rocks the stadium is a simple tale. But like you just, again, you're just repeating. Uh, look, uh, anyway, the point is, Pep's coach took a lot of good water, water polo penalties. The players are smiling, silent but relaxed. They're enjoying the tone of this team talk. I've learned two things from Manel and his penalties. So listen up, says Pep. These are only two things you need to do. Uh, the only two things you need to do now. First, Make up your mind immediately as to where you're going to put the ball and stick with that decision. I'll say it again. Decide now and don't change your mind no matter what happens. Okay, so that's homespun, conventional wisdom number one. I mean, like pretty much everyone who's ever taken a penalty knows that. Even the people who completely bottle it are aware that they're supposed to actually just try to make their decision. Of course. Secondly, keep telling yourself that you're going to score. Repeat it a thousand times and don't stop until after you've taken the penalty. Don't worry and don't change your minds. Uh, There's no list, lads. You can choose whether or not to take one. You choose. You're all going to score anyway. So you decide who's taking them. Who's up for it? <laughs> so they, they all score their penalties. Just, I mean, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's an, an example. Approach of, the book with caution is what you're saying. Although that's... Uh, that, uh, so it's interesting. It you is know, interesting, yeah. I mean, I mean, just, one, just one other quick one. And this is, this is from the... Uh, and these, these are published extracts. So you, can, you can check these out. You'll find these easy enough online. Um, Pep is... Uh, Oh my god! You know it's a, it's the biggest, uh, the biggest foul up of my career as a coach, uh, which is the four 0 home defeat to Real Madrid, and uh, Pep Guardiola obviously went. So if you remember, the Bayern went over to Madrid, kept the ball for all, the whole game, and then Madrid scored. Madrid won one 0 with a counter, brilliant counter attacking goal, and Bayern just kept the ball and barely shot, and it was like oh, 
you know, that's disappointing. So what are we going to do in the second leg? Well, right now, Guardiola's facing one of the most common dilemmas in a football coach's life. How do you attack effectively in such a tight space? At 3 a.m. on Thursday, April 24th, Pep is considering the obvious fact that Madrid will shut up shop when they visit the Allianz for the second leg. But here's where Pep is a little bit different from ordinary coaches because he continues. The coach also has Gary Kasparov's words ringing in his ears. Gary Kasparov? Yeah. Remember, Pep, you don't win games just because you've moved your pieces to the front. It's during these early hours reflections that Pep decides to play the return leg with a 3-4-3 formation. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, explains why he's doing 3-4-3. He can change to 3-5-2. Three are theoretically good for defending counterattacks. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's then that I overhear Guardiola telling Dominic Torrent, his assistant coach, Dome, don't let me change my mind. This is the only way to go. Then, on the flight back to Munich, Pep changed his mind. So, uh, it, it's, it's quite interesting, this extract, actually, because it has Pep... Sort of saying, uh, it, it starts off with Pep. It's just after Pep has assumed all the responsibility for the 4 0. He's gone out in public and he's gone, oh, I can't believe it. It was, you know, I, I totally messed that one up. I, I've, I take all the blame for that. And then it's all about how the players talked him into, into having a really attacking approach against Madrid. Um, there's, a, there's an interesting line about how he, he made a mistake. He, he, met, he started listening to his players. They wanted to be allowed to play with their heart and their soul and to attack. And Pep eventually said, okay, you're Germans. You go out there and do what you do best at attack. And, uh, and they obviously just, um, what was the phrase? One of, them, one of them described it afterwards as like a, like a guy who just ran onto a knife. You know what I mean? That was, right. what, that was what they were like. But uh, yeah, look, okay. I mean, I know, I know it sounds as though I've been citing that book there, but I'm probably going to read it uh, Maybe maybe take a few breaks uh, in the process, but I'll probably. That's read the it. end of Kennerly's report on sport. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck <laughs> happened? No, really. You know, what happened? When John was young. Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. I think I'm Fanning is going to join us in a moment. Emma Malone is here now and was in Gelsenkirchen for the Irish Times on Tuesday. Uh, still excited by it, Emma? Well, still recovering from it. I don't know whether that's uh, you know from the excitement or the stress, but uh, uh, but yeah, it was it was good stuff. I see Martin O'Neill. Uh, you've quotes from him today. Um, this is presumably from the, the sort of briefing that he does at the end of mm. at the end of these kind of weeks. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we like to give too much away about where those quotes come from. Where the quotes yeah. come from? Yeah, yeah. but he he, he, uh, you're, he was talking about the challenge that Scotland pose. It sounds like he hasn't thought about it too much necessarily, which is fair enough about what kind of game plan Ireland will have against Scotland, which is probably fair enough. He had to get through these two games. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, he was—he God, he was at pains to 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 uh, keep telling us last week about how he hadn't thought about Germany until Gibraltar was out of the way. So it would seem sort right, of miraculous yeah. if he was thinking ahead to Scotland. But yeah, I think he has a fair bit to weigh up in in in, in the aftermath of all this. Not just how um, how Ireland did in Germany and the the kind of hockey of Gibraltar, but obviously how Scotland have done as well. So um, there's a fair amount to digest, and he has some time to do that. The performance against uh, Dion Fanning is with us as well, Dion. Just to go back to the game against Germany, what has, besides Ireland's heroics, which we will get into, the whole German attitude to this uh, match seemed a little bit bizarre. There's the issue with the substitutes. There's Yogi Love's, uh, 
I don't know, it, it seemed as though even Yogi himself doesn't seem to have been able to really get up for these few qualifying games so far. Yeah, I thought the uh, substitution uh, situation was was incredible. That he would have only you know four outfield players uh, on the pitch, so you know three substitutes for four players essentially, unless a goalkeeper got injured. Uh, and myself and Emma were both at, at at his press conference in the Mercedes showroom on on Monday. And when one journalist suggested, you know, would you not bring some players in? And uh, and Love said, who would you? Who do you have in mind? Uh, I think thinking you know, rhetorically, but the journalist enlisted a number of players uh, who you could bring in, and he said, "Oh yeah, well they're all in our, in our heads, but not, not for now." Uh, and it did seem to be a, a kind of dismissive uh, attitude to to the game, and I felt Germany played like that. I like doesn't you know a lot of Ireland have got a lot of credit, and rightly so. But I think if Germany had been uh, switched on, especially in the first you know half an hour. Uh, they really could have done damage to Ireland when when Ireland were giving the ball away too easily. You know, Robbie Keane again. The debate about Robbie Keane as a lone striker will, will continue after that game because there was no Ireland had no way of relieving pressure. Uh, so I think you know, in the in, at that time, uh, it was um, you know Ireland were, were kind of vulnerable, and Germany seemed to think that well, if we just keep playing in any, you know, we'll, we'll beat these because we're the world champions. They didn't play like world champions, but just with the idea that we're world champions, so we'll win. I kind of thought that as well, Emmett. I mean, it, the, the the most dangerous part of the game seemed to be the first 20 minutes or so, but mainly because Ireland seemed to make a quite nervous start to the game, yeah, so they were yeah. expecting an onslaught, which never quite materialised. Well, I, I, I think the other thing was they struggled to get to grips with the pace of it. I mean, it was it was, it was was far quicker in midfield than I think our, our players are used to, and certainly they did make that shaky start. I thought the more interesting part of it, in a way, was after after the goal and, and where where Ireland were forced to start chasing the game. And I, I think a more experienced German side um, you know, a side with Schweinsteiger in it and Ozil maybe would have been smoking a pretty fat cigar about the idea of Ireland having to come out then and chase things. And um, your instinct in those situations is to think, well, you know, now we're now we're really in trouble. Yeah. You know, like um, uh, it's 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 a, it's an evoluted um, version of the question you were asking me last week about whether you'd settle for a one nil defeat um, yeah. before the game. Well, well, you know, well, what do you what do you what are you prepared to chance here? You know, obviously it makes a little difference to lose two or three nil, but but it becomes a very real risk then that you push forward and you can, and you concede more goals and I and I think both teams would 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 be conscious of that but um, but in fact Germany lost the initiative completely yeah. and and reacted like a quite poor team that had taken the lead and and were suddenly quite nervous about holding on to they it. They just sat they just sort of sat back without any real threat. Is it yeah. turned out that we're we're actually a lot better against the side that sits back and doesn't try to come at us? That's well, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure that came as uh, as much a surprise to some of the players on the pitch as it did to anybody else. You know? Dion, where do you stand on the uh, praise that O'Neill has been getting? It was notable that John O'Shea immediately after the match referenced what we've heard a lot about since and that was a, that O'Neill did say even before the game and I think at half time look if they go a goal ahead we come back at them we're not walking out of here with a 1-0 as Emmett was saying you know, what's the difference 2-3-4-5 and O'Neill mentioned that one after the game uh, is, is that not a fairly basic requirement of the manager to, to make sure the players know that he that they shouldn't be happy to walk away with a 1-0 and that if you do go a goal down you actually have to come out and attack there's no point walking away with it may as well be 2 or 3 well yeah, except I think to be there would be a, a lot of managers who would uh, who would think, well, 
let's not have let's not have a, a three nil defeat on 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 my CV. Mm. Uh, let's not you know have this look too bad. Bad. We're better off just losing one nil, and it'll be a narrow defeat. And you know, one of the things O'Neill said in the in the, in the press conference immediately afterwards afterwards was that he he's not interested in moral victories, uh, and it did look like it was going to be a moral victory. Uh, that was the thing. It was kind of a it was set up to be a classic Irish one nil defeat. And, and and moral victory. So I think he deserves deserves a huge amount of credit for that. For you know to to uh, you know you can't say after after three games that you know exactly what O'Neill is doing. Even if two of them have come with you know uh, points gained or are secured in the in the in the last minute, which is which is incredibly impressive. Uh, and you have to give them credit for that. Whether it's it's a bit of luck as well, who knows? But it's 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 something that is seems to, you know the players are talking about it. The, the uh, the spirit he's getting within the squad, um, and this sense of going out and playing, and not being afra- afraid to get, to lose, you know, to go out and play when they went one down, which was impressive. This is Martin. Yeah, Emmett, sorry, you want to yeah, but I do, I do think there was. I don't think you can underestimate the amount of luck that was involved the other night. Right. I mean, we, we we played our part, and you've got to do that. And uh, and I mean, people talked about you know, and I I wrote about Poland beforehand, um, having four chances on goal in in the game and 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 scoring two of them on Saturday night against the Germans, and and, and we go there the other night, and Wes Hulhan misses, and I I sitting in the stand thinking, well, that's our chance you know and 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 and, uh, and we've missed it and and you know what what changes but but in fact we create another one and that's great we've done our part we've taken one of our chances we get a result but you can't underestimate how 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 poorly the Germans uh, approached this game or mm. or performed in it. They were they were they were missing a lot of players. We've talked about the substitutes thing was a bit weird. Low uh, limited is is um, his options, but you know I really think that that team with uh, Schweinsteiger and and Lamb in it, you know, beat us any day of the week. You know, I, I, mean? I wonder if we will look back on this a bit like the games against France in two thousand and four, two thousand and five, when you know got, Ireland got the scoreless draw in Paris, uh, and then. You kind of thought that was a weak French team that you could almost have done yeah. better against. Now, when when Germany come to Dublin and you know Schweinsteiger, Kadira, Ozil are available, they will look like a different side. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's their worst that's their worst start to a qualifying campaign in history, yeah. and um, and yet. I'd say you'd struggle to find anyone who'd bet against them yeah. you know certainly qualifying probably quali- topping the group but this is Martin O'Neill as advertised we're talking we were hoping that a guy would come in and m- get a, f- a limited enough group of international footballers to be super motivated as, as he's done in club football a guy like James McLean the other night and he's almost a pet project of O'Neill's in some ways I thought looked great looked, looked like a good international class footballer which yeah. he hadn't really done before you know everyone well, clamoured for him strong yeah, quick go, and aggressive yeah. Yeah. if you go back to 2010 we started a campaign we got 7 points from our first 9 we drew with Italy who were the world champions albeit coming off a, a poor European championship uh, and Caleb Follin looked like a bit of a world beater in Barry you know uh, <laughs> yeah. as, as we came from behind you, you sound unconvinced so far well, about the Irish I, I just think it's early days you know yeah. we've, we've been through a period with, with, with O'Neill where he's been through a whole bunch of uh, uh, friendly games which obviously didn't matter very much the performance were were mixed and we were building to this. We've made a good start to the campaign and and that's great. But I wouldn't be you know wouldn't be uh, booking the open top bus quite yet. Now the two of you are obviously in um, the Avshaka Arena, so you wouldn't have been watching the coverage on TV back here. And um, the panel on our team getting a few pelters for uh, for maybe being a little bit too negative about what was you know an outstanding result when you yeah. look at it one all the way to Germany is an, is an amazing result but um, I mean the main subject of discussion there and I, w- I wonder what you made of his performance tonight was Wes Hulin the fact that he was left out of the team uh, came on and um, 
made a few mistakes actually. Yeah, Almost did. every time yeah, he touched he the ball, he, yeah, he, yeah, he I thought it was actually a mixed performance, but he made it. Yeah, I, overall, I think his compact his, his contribution was was pretty positive and it's yeah. great. Uh, he did make some mistakes, and I, I I think it's difficult to extrapolate from you know the impact that he made late on that uh, that we would have been you know all the better for having him on from the start. Um, uh, I'm not so sure that the Germans you know wouldn't have had uh, more of more of an impact on him um, uh, had, had he been involved from the start and that he didn't benefit from uh, coming on when they were tiring and, and, and losing kind of uh, control of, of the game. But Is it the case that, that O'Neill sees him as a, as, a player, as a kind of a luxury that you can't afford? I mean, a luxury player is such a cliche, but you know, there seems to be this idea that that uh, he's not he's not a player that you can rely on in a difficult game. I have yeah, to say I that I was absolutely. worried about that as well when the when he came on and the very first contribution he made was a terrible ball, just an underhit, casual looking yeah. pass into the middle of midfield. I was thinking, oh no, <laughs> yeah, this yeah, is yeah. A, a fairly cautious manager by nature. This is exactly why he's not putting Wesley. I, I, I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever that that's what O'Neill thinks. I think that yeah. that O'Neill thinks that Wesley is a is a really good player to have for certain games and, uh, and well, again, against weaker teams. Well, what, yeah. about, what about against Scotland? Or, well, I mean, that's going to be what's what's going to be really interesting over the next couple of weeks to see where Scotland fit into this. But essentially, what we've had is uh, O'Neill take a, a, you know a similar approach um, in Germany as he's taken to 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 in Georgia, you know, and, and we've we've nicked a win in uh, in Georgia, we've nicked a draw in Germany, and, and I wouldn't expect things to change uh, uh, dramatically in 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 Scotland, which would suggest Wes starts the game on the bench. Dion, where are you on the Wes debate? Well. I think there's one aspect of it as well is that when you start Robbie Keane, he's not going to risk Wes Houlihan too because then you're, you know, in O'Neill's eyes, you're carrying two players uh, because O'Neill, Robbie doesn't offer anything uh, in a in a defensive way or in keeping a shape or holding the ball up. And if you worry about Wes doing, you know, being being slight and being light in those in those situations, then that's not going to happen. So once Robbie starts, you have to kind of bulk the team up or have some industry everywhere else in the squad in, on the side. Uh, I think he was trying too hard when he came on as well. I think because of being left out, and he probably feels that he, he you know, he, he probably feels like he should be playing. Uh, he was he was trying a bit bit hard, and I also feel that he had a lack of options around him. Now a lot of the mistakes he made were his, were his own doing, but there weren't weren't uh, things too many things happening for him. I think Wes Hoolan is best when there are people running for him. I saw him playing for Norwich a couple of weeks ago at Brentford. And it was kind of the same thing. He'd be waiting and waiting and waiting for people to make these runs. And until he actually made the pass, the, the forwards weren't actually picking up the runs. And then they'd kind of get onto it and go belting, you know, charging after it too late. And I think there is that with Wes. He likes people to anticipate things. I, I still do think while Robbie Keane starts, he's a luxury player. And I think Robbie Keane will, will start in Scotland. Yeah, I, I think there's the Robbie Keane factor. I, told, I also think there's the James McLean factor. I, I mean, um, uh, Martin O'Neill is, is clearly very, very fond of James McLean. And, and for me, the, the, the debate beforehand, and I think for a lot of the journalists, as we, we, as we kind of weighed up the, the options before the team was named, was whether, um, whether it would be James McLean or, or John Walters. And, mm-hmm. and, and in the end, he's gone for both. And, uh, and McLean, you know, looks like a player who uh, would have a reputation for being Defensively weak um, and not, not pulling his weight, and, and so you can kind of think, well, well, can he afford to play both of those? So, like Keane stays in the team, absolutely, I agree with you. I think Keane, Keane is going to be there for certainly the next few matches. Um, but when McLean starts, uh, Wes becomes more of a problem as well. You know, uh, mm. he, he surprised us this time on the, on the way. I thought actually, I have to say, just while we're on all of this, he, he started Stephen Quinn instead of Wes Hoolan. I thought Stephen Quinn was very impressive, particularly mm. in the first half. Uh, I thought he showed a lot of composure on the ball and. and 
and and slow things down and and generally pass the ball well um, at a time that we were under a lot of pressure and that somebody in there I'm not saying Hulan would have, but if had Hulan been in there and been swamped, uh, we 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 may have been under a lot under a lot more pressure. Mm. Um, but I think if McLean stays in the team again, it makes difficult it makes life difficult for Wes in terms of getting his place. We 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 all seem to agree that Robbie Gaines probably going to play the games. What would it actually take for him to play his way out of the team? I mean, it was, you know, that's the second away match in a row in which he's been in. And a bystander, effectively, in the game. I mean, he hasn't, hasn't achieved anything. He can, I mean, Hulahan touched the ball as many times when he was on the field for 15 minutes as Robbie Keane did in the more than an hour he was on the field. Yeah, I, I mean, there were different there were, there were different 15 minutes. There were a very different 15 minutes. I mean, we were chasing the game and we were pushing and we were further up the field than we were, you know, for a lot of that, the first half. I mean, I saw, I, I think you were tweeting a, a, a diagram of his touches in the field, Keane's Robbie touches Keane's. in the first half. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and it was it was pretty grim reading, albeit... He like hadn't that. touched the ball within 35 yards of Germany's goal. Is that no, his fault, though? I, I think there is an element of that, that it's not... No, that. I mean, yeah, at what point, you know, players have to... Players have to get themselves involved in the game. Strikers, though, I mean, they can't really get themselves involved in, in the game. If, if, Ireland, we were talking about composure there. They developed that slowly over the course of the game, but in the first certainly, yeah. certainly twenty minutes, half an hour, they couldn't pass. I the think, ball. I think he'd gone Keane. with McLean. He'd gone with mm. McLean. He'd gone with McGeady. McGeady, I know, was starting on. Uh, started in the centre. He switched to the right quite early on, and there was a bit of interchanging going on. I thought we were better with McGeady on the right, and mm. and Walters playing in support of uh, of uh, Keane through the middle. But essentially, Keane for me is on there. So that if we do create a chance and you're committing to, to playing with two wide men in the hope of pressing forward and creating chances, I think Keane's on there because if we do create a chance, he's more likely to take it than Shane Long, who um, yeah. who, who you can do that thing of hoofing balls to and he'll hold ball the play up better. But we're still 40 metres out from the pitch, uh, from the goal against Germany. A player, Martin O'Neill, doesn't seem to write. By the no, 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 absolutely. No, that's I think that's a, uh, that's a, a, a pretty clear message from the, the games we've seen so far. Uh, he has a lot to do with club level. He's gone a, tw- a 12 he's, he's, He's thirty million pounds in transfer fees now. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. Long. It's he's, unbelievable. He's, uh, yeah, he's gone a twelve million pound move to Southampton, who are a club who, you know, uh, albeit like they were kind of swimming in cash this summer, but they're not a they're not a club. I'd imagine who um, who throwed out a, a amount of money around lightly. And he, he, he was saying when he moved there that they they'd sort of showed him they'd been tracking him for a while and had like done all these statistical what's on him, you know, and <laughs> they'd been like Shane, we've you know you're the you're the man for us. We've we've known this for a long time. So uh, which you know I, I would have. Had, <laughs> to say I, I would have assumed Pat Dolan just drove down there with all his players in the car like when he heard how, how, how much money they had after selling their other players so um, but he's got, he's got a lot to prove at club level he's got to have a, he's, he's got to start having a, a really good season at Southampton if he's going to, going to get back into the Irish team because so far O'Neill has made it pretty clear he, he doesn't fancy him We've still got James McCarthy to come back into that midfield at some stage Dion but uh, Darren Gibson looked fairly authoritative when he came on uh, the other night I thought is there a place for him in there? Yeah maybe I, I was Kind of when watching it on the night, I, I wasn't impressed when really? Gibson came on, but I looked at it again yesterday, and I, he was quite. You know, he did show a bit of authority. I thought his passing was, he, you know, he overhit a lot of passes and uh, gave the ball away a bit. But well, maybe that, he looks. I always think Darren Gibson looks the part. He always looks authoritative, as I said, and confident. Maybe, maybe, I, I thought all those passes were sticking, but maybe not. And Emmett <laughs> looks doubtful here as well. Yeah, yeah no, I didn't. I think, like even when I watched it again, the passes weren't sticking. But he was kind of getting on the ball a bit and then giving the ball away, which was progress compared to just nothing on the ball in the first place. 
which was the problem for some of the Irish midfielders, well, Glenn Whelan in particular. He, he, he's a man who believes in his own uh, yeah. abilities, you know, yeah. so uh, yeah. uh, Gibson could have an absolute nightmare, but he'd, he'd come off kind of looking pretty, pretty happy. Pretty pleased. Well, is, is, is a problem with Gibson maybe that it, it could be the problem with footballers, I don't know, sometimes, I mean, that they're too good, too young. He, he was always, I presume, a pretty big guy and he was quite highly rated coming through. It yeah. was a name we'd, we'd heard of quite a lot even before uh, we knew he was going to be playing for us. Sometimes maybe the players with that kind of attitude just not improve enough because bulletproof confidence is great to have in some ways yeah. for a sports person, but you do want a guy to move on through their career. Well, I, I mean, look, we've been talking about Gibson uh, for a long time now in exactly this vein, and, and okay, his career over the last year and a half has been badly disrupted by yeah. a very, very, by a very big injury, but he's back now. He's still regaining fitness. I think possibly uh, him not starting the other night was was to some extent fitness related. Um, but he's another player who's you know he things are teed up for him now you know he's in a he's at a club where you know ostensibly the manager you would expect to put a lot of faith in him and he's and if he delivers on that this could be a very very big season for him but he's got to start having a you know a, a very big season pretty quickly because well, he's 25 now I think you know I mean he's he's not a kid anymore and uh, he has the potential to be a very important player for us the other, I think, I think Jeff Hendrick is also a player to yeah. look at over the next campaign of this campaign because he did, you know he did really well for the goal and uh, he's he's a player who's is kind of developing quite quickly. Uh, and any man, you know, Marco Tardelli was quite impressed with him when when he was in in the Ireland squad before. And I think O'Neill has been impressed uh, since you know he took over. And he's one of these players who the last eighteen like, months with some some really big clubs, and there's supposed to be a lot of interest in him. And and, and people see him as having a lot of potential. So I mean, in that central, it's raining central well, midfielders. In that, this is amazing. Right. We can't get enough. In that central midfield area, there is at least some some promise. Yeah, uh, and we were trying Aidan McGeady in there as well. And th- this is actually another one of the main themes of the we're like Germany. We're like Germany. All we have is great central midfielders. attacking players. But you know, how, how do you think McGeady did? I mean, the, the opinion of John Giles, I think, was not never going to be a midfielder. Never going to, never, never going to be a success in central position. I'm not saying I'm not so sure. Just based on what I've seen for him, seen off McGeady rather playing for Everton and so on. I've seen him do some pretty good things um, playing in the kind of position he was in last night. Maybe the, there's an advantage in playing behind someone like Romelu Lukaku as, as opposed to Robbie Keane. Yeah, but I, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say he's a, he's a total write off there. Do you think it's no, something no, no? I don't be... think he's a complete write off. I, I just think that, uh, like you know, Keane, uh, like broadly speaking, I'm sort of. I'm more up for Keane staying in the team than, than a lot of other people seem to be but I I think that he needs some sort of support and I think that McGeady is better and more offensive in the wide position than Walters is and mm. I think Walters is more effective supporting Keane in the, in the middle and I just think in that specific kind of you know if you're, if you're taking that combination then it works I, I agree I think McGeady could work better in a stronger team that's likely to be further up the, up the pitch in the same way that, that Wes can uh, for Ireland I, that, that, that seems to be O'Neill's thinking that, that Wes can at home. Um, I thought personally that McGeady looked a little lost in there when things weren't going so brilliantly in, in the early stages when he was central the other night. But I, I certainly don't think that means he shouldn't play there, period. All right. Dion, at this early stage, and both of you, first of all, you, Dion, are you confident about the challenge awaiting in Scotland? Yeah, I, I think Ireland can, can go. I wouldn't. I think Ireland can go and win in Scotland uh, and certainly avoid defeat. Okay. Emmett? Um, I think it's a possibility. Yeah, I, I am optimistic about it, but that's gen- that's not necessarily <laughs> my record on these things. isn't 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 all that great. Uh, look, I, I, 
Scotland have clearly improved as well. Like ourselves, they're playing with a bit of confidence. That was a very good result for them uh, the other night, I think, and particularly coming from behind at one stage. Um, uh, Strachan seems to be having much the sort of effect uh, on, on the, the, a, a fairly limited bunch of players. They're a limited bunch of players. That O'Neill seems to be having on our limited bunch of players. It's going to be interesting. I certainly don't think it's out of the question that we win, and I certainly think it's, 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 there's a pretty good prospect of getting a result, which would be okay at this stage. Sounds good. Emmett, Dion, thanks a million. Thanks, lads. You're welcome. All right, that's, that's good manners. A number of players have played, but they're still in the squad. I wonder, did you speak to any of them before deciding to accept the job? No, absolutely not. No, 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 obviously none of their business, you know, what I was going to do. It's a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to win football matches. There's nothing to tame, you know, some sort of animal, you know what I mean? And you obviously don't know Martin as well as you think you do. He makes me look like Mother Teresa. You know, he's a... Um, <laughs> I know, and we want to win football matches. We've had a lovely few days, the hotel's been lovely, food's been excellent, training ground is lovely, no potholes, uh, we've had footballs, it's been great, bibs, everything, it's been major progress. And we want to win football matches. Can I take you back to your Aidan McGeady uh, yeah. idea there? You think it'll work? I've seen him do good things. I mean, okay. I, I, can Aidan McGeady cross the ball? Not very well, in my opinion. You know, it's always the thing people have been saying about McGeady. His final product is poor. They say that about every winger in the world besides Ryan Giggs. It's because crossing is, crossing is Quite just hard. old-fashioned yeah. football. You know, it's not Stanley Matthews anymore. You know, you don't have... Uh, it's not the way football is played anymore. I mean, look at the goal that Aidan McGeady set up for uh, Everton against Chelsea, for instance. Do you remember that goal? Um, it was a crazy, was it 6-3 to Chelsea, oh, yeah. um, the, the game? McGeady getting the ball sort of uh, in a very deep position, right, kind of right side of midfield and cutting inside, like kind of a cross-field dribble, played in, oh, I can't remember, was it Naismith? He played a nice little pass into the area. But the point was that he, he beat a man in an area of the field where you don't often see um, those types of dribbles. Now, there is obviously a reason for that. You know what I mean? If you were a football traditionalist, you'd say, well, it's not just a random thing that you don't often see dribbles past guys in central midfield. It's because it's it's because the game has evolved that way, you know, for reasons like which are, you know, if you dribble past a guy, you lose the ball, which often happens when you're trying to dribble past a guy and you're in central midfield. And oftentimes he's right in in your defense. And that's not good. Um, but, you know, I still think that McGeady has. I, I, I mean, this idea, this kind of old fashioned idea of him running down, hugging the touchline, slinging over crosses. Number one, we don't really have anyone who's going to score those crosses. I mean, Robbie Gain won't score them. Um, and John Walters hasn't really been, uh, has he? I mean, no, uh, we know this is our earlier argument. We don't, just don't have anyone prolific. And that's not Robbie's kind of goal. No, I think the kind of goal that he scores is, I mean, you, you see the goals that Hulahan sets him up with. I mean, um, yeah, I think the point through the centre. Yeah, the point that people were making on Tuesday night, though, was that if you're going to play a creative player who doesn't, isn't going to offer you a whole lot defensively, in that position, why not play Wes Hulan rather than Aidan McGeady? Yeah. Because that's where Wes Hulan plays, as yeah. opposed to trying to make something of Aidan McGeady that there we've seen flashes of, yeah. but not consistent. Performance. I mean, I, I would I would tend to I would tend to agree. To be honest, I mean, I think the reason that McGeady would be favoured. I mean, there there are a few reasons. O'Neill obviously knows him. I'm not saying he, he's playing him because he used to play him Celtic, but he knows him and I think he rates him. He definitely seems to have confidence in him. Yeah, yeah he has confidence in him. I mean, McGeady got ability. two goals against Georgia and yeah. saved our hides. So. Oh, yeah, no, McGeady's going to be in the team no matter what. I mean, uh, whether he's on the wing or in the middle is the only question. 
Um, but you know, I think McGeady has got has has got potential to develop in that kind of role. Everton are using him a lot more there than they would be as a wide player. I think that's actually his future as a player. So I don't think just not looking brilliant in that role against Germany in an away match for Ireland is necessarily right. That's it. That's the experiment done. You're, you're, you're never leaving the touchline again. Jonathan Wilson joins us to chat about the diplomatic incident, Jonathan, between Serbia and Albania when a very crafty and very tech-savvy Albanian managed to have a drone fly into the stadium in Belgrade with the provocative flag. Sets off riotous scenes there. A lot of people would have seen this online. The Serbians put out a 1,500-word statement themselves. Uh, Albania then came back at that and had a few things to say. It seems like this is getting more unseemly as the week goes on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the initial provocation was obviously the, the drone, the remote control helicopter, which came over with the flag, and that sparks everything off. So from that point of view, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's an Albanian issue that, that they've provoked it. Albanians say that there was racial chance and, and chance against them in the stands long before that, which may well be the case, I don't know. And that's something UEFA clearly have to look at. But the, um, I, guess, I guess the crux of it is that after the players went off the pitch, uh, so you know, Mitrovic grabs the flag, there's the brawl, um, fans run on, there's missiles thrown, Martin Atkinson, the referee, takes the players off just before half-time. Now, the Serbians say that the Albanians refused to come back to restart the game sort of an hour, hour and a half, hour long afterwards it was, when Martin Atkinson felt that things had calmed down enough. The Albanians say that, that they were in fear for their lives and they said that the, the police had actually attacked them and they didn't trust the police to, to keep order. So, you know, it's very, very hard to, to unpick that, to, to know who's right, but you know, that's, that's what you have to do. Watching this incident, though, uh, John, it's obviously unbelievably complicated. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on, there's a lot of people involved, there's clearly a lot of blame to go around. A lot of people have, um, have bent or broken various of uh, football's rules and the rules of polite uh, civilization. Um, but the two Albanians who ran over to Mitrovic and grabbed the flag off him as though, you know, it was the, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, they, as they, they seem to me to be the ones who turned what was a kind of a, a extremely provocative prank into a, a violent confrontation. Yeah, I would agree with that, with, with the one caveat that, that we don't know what had been chanted before. We don't know if, you know, if they'd been deliberately wound up by, by the Serbian crowd. But in, you know, you're quite right. Looking from the outside, Mitrovic has done nothing wrong. There's this drone coming over he's, the flag. He's obviously saying, holding the let's go. get on he with the game. It, which is a perfectly logical, legitimate thing to do. He hasn't sort of disrespected the flag. He hasn't thrown it on the ground or stamped on it or anything like that. And he's suddenly attacked by Xhaka and I can't remember who the other one was. But, but yeah, you're right, two, two Albanian players. I mean, again, you know, we could see what then happened uh, on the pitch. There were these Serbian fans who looked like some, they they looked like some pretty kind of unpleasant individuals. And it sort of later emerges that one of the guys on the pitch, you know, these huge kind of bear-like men, you know, with their faces covered in these horrible um, fascist uh, logos all over their clothing. And that one of these guys in particular had been at the Italy-Serbia game in 2010, which was abandoned due to crowd violence in the uh, Serbian section. And on that night, you could see them burning Albanian flags uh, there as well. This guy had done time and was banned from football. And there he is um, at a Serbia home match. Yeah, I mean, the in, in Britain, it's, it's, it's fairly easy to receive a banning order and expect it to be, to be obeyed. Uh, that clearly isn't the case in Serbia. Um, there's all kinds of, of other issues going on in terms of the links between the ultra groups and, and organised crime with, with the far right. I mean, the, the issue in, in Genoa uh, when that game was abandoned, the, the specific reason why the Albanian flags were being burned 
was that there was a visit from um, from Hillary Clinton who had said something that week in support of, of cost and independence. So, I mean, it, it wasn't sort of a, a random act of Albanian flag burning, but, but you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue, one that hasn't really been resolved. I, I guess still sort of the, the, the big outstanding issue from, from the end of the conflict to the 90s and, and, and slightly afterwards. Uh, and in retrospect, um, maybe if, if teams can be kept apart in draws, which... I have to say, I'm not entirely convinced by that as a principle, but given other teams have been kept apart, maybe Serbia and Albania should have been. What other teams have been kept apart there, John? Because that is an interesting well, there's, part there's, two, um, there's two instances. Uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan can't be drawn together. And actually, they were drawn together four years ago, I think, or maybe six years ago. And then it was not playing the two games because both of them were at the bottom of the group. It didn't really matter. So there was the two games left unplayed. And they've now decided that Armenia and Azerbaijan can't play because of the issue in the Gornikarabakh. And there's sort of lingering resentment from the war there. And Spain have refused to play Gibraltar, which um, is not quite in the same league of, of, mm. of nastiness. But but um, they've just said that they wouldn't play. So UEFA decided to keep them apart. Well, it seems, I don't know, it seems that, I, I, don't, it, I guess it's an arbitrary line that you're drawing. I mean, how volatile does the situation have to be? How much enmity does there have to be between countries? But if you are drawing that line, You'd be placing Serbia and Albania presumably underneath it, and that's a game that should be avoided at all costs. I would have thought you don't agree with that in principle. I, I, I think the principle is very, very dangerous, just because it's so it's so difficult to, to police. I mean, Serbia played Croatia in World Cup qualifying, and in each case there was no away fans there. But in both cases, the game went off perfectly amicably. Um, the, the, you know, those games were were um, I, I suspect have sort of improved relations between. Yeah, two natural enemies. So, and that, that I think yeah, you have to give the managers and the FAs a lot of credit for for for, for those games. So, I mean, where where do you draw the line? Because when when a draw happens and, and you get two countries drawn together that you know have have history, part of you goes, "Oh, great! You know, there's going to be a bit of tension there, a bit of needle." You kind of want that. So, I, I think it comes back. I mean, I know it's a point I've, I've talked a lot with Gabriele Marcotti about this, and I, you know, I know he's put this this point as well. When it comes to, to racism in a stadium, that, that actually the way to deal with this is you say to any competing team, it is your responsibility to have an environment in which it is possible to play football. Now, if that environment suddenly includes people chanting racist slogans, then it's no longer an appropriate environment and uh, sanctions follow. Similarly, I, th- I think if you get a situation where the crowd isn't controlled, which is a load of provocation, is the, is the situation here then you know, they're not providing the requisite environment. Now, So I think a better way to approach it is to say anybody can be drawn with anybody, but if you as the home FA, if you think you can't control it, you have the right to request it be moved to a neutral venue. And I think that's a way of of sort of avoiding... I mean, the danger of this becomes a sort of regular thing. If you say, oh, we can't play against them because we had a war against them 10 years ago or because bit of territory they've got we think is actually part of ours... Um, the, the, you just get teams saying, "Well, hang on, they, they're better than us. We, we don't want to play that. Yeah. So we'll pretend we have some political." Yeah, we, yeah, we don't really want you to play Germany. Yeah, Germany played yeah. Hungary at the weekend, and there's still huge tension there about the Treaty of Trianon from 1920 and, and Transylvania being. Sorry, who, who, Romania against Hungary? Against Hungary, yeah, and, and Transylvania used to be part of Hungary. Was given to Romania, okay, almost 100 years ago. That's still a source of great tension. And you know they they did the, the sort of the bubble thing that Hungarian fans had to get a particular train, and they were taken into the stadium. And there was a, there was crowd trouble there. Of um, I basically seemed to be the police overreacting from 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 a video I saw, but you know I, I wasn't there, so I wouldn't like to say that too too strongly. But you know, there's 
this, this cases crop up all the time. And once you allow this as a principle, the teams can say, well, we don't fancy playing them. You know, where does it end? And, and who, who makes the decision? I'm not really certain UEFA is is competent to do that or is the right body to be making those decisions. Yeah. Um, Serbia is a country with a serious image problem, I think, Jonathan. I mean, uh, oh, it seems all around Europe people... I mean, it doesn't help that the, their matches keep getting abandoned because of uh, crowd trouble. You know, the, the the football team, which I guess is one of the prouder institutions in Serbia, um, you know, they've, they've got a pretty good football history, um, you know, has, has not been good for their image in recent years. There's been all of this kind of trouble. Generally speaking, the country has a, has a bit of a problem and seems to, it seems to feel like quite an embattled place as though the rest of Europe doesn't really understand. I mean, you've been there. What does it seem like from a Serb's point of view? No, I think, I think that's absolutely right. I think there is an enormous persecution complex, which is, yeah, I can kind of understand where it's come from. I mean, it's clearly far greater than it's justified, but... Um, I mean, yeah, I, I, you could go hundreds of years back, but if you look, look at the war of the 90s, Serbians definitely feel that they are perceived as having been the aggressor and they were perceived as being sort of the great evil force. Now, there, there is some truth to that. I mean, I, I think generally you'd agree that um, it was Serb expansionism which caused that conflict, but the Croatians weren't innocent in that conflict. Bosnian Muslims weren't, although they were you know, severely victimised, they, they weren't totally innocent in that conflict. That there was fault on both sides. And I think there's a perception in Serbia that, that that's not recognised, that they're just seen as being the evil man of Europe. And so you've got things, for instance, in uh, the 2006 World Cup, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but they had a special pot for Serbia, or Serbia Montenegro as it still was then, um, that uh, there, were, there was one too many European teams to, to, to fit neatly into the pot. So there's a ninth European team who wasn't a seed. And which happened this time, but uh, whereas this time it was done by by a free draw, uh, back then they said, "Oh, we'll serve you the lowest ranks, so we'll put them in with I think it was Asia, Asia and Concacaf, I, I, or maybe be with Africa." But you know, they were separated off from the rest of Europe. And in Serbia, that was perceived, "Oh, it's yet another slight on the Serbian nation. They don't want us to be part of you." So there, there is a sense of kind of constantly looking to be to be aggrieved. Uh, and I think you know we do bear a, a small. Not you know, it's not complete effort, but we do have a small responsibility for that. Because you see regularly when there are instances of, of, uh, of racism involving Serbian fans, there is a sort of blanket approach of, oh, they're all like that, they're all terrible. So I mean, I'll, I'll give you the example of, um, was it the European Under-21 Championships in 2008? I think it was 2008. But the, the tournament that was in the Netherlands, and there were black England players who were racially abused by what appeared to be Serbian fans. And there was all these calls for Serbia to, to be banned from, from the race competition. And the, the Serbian's response seemed to me perfectly legitimate and logical, which is to say, well, hang on, these, these people, uh, you know, we haven't, as far as we're aware, nobody has requested a visa to leave Serbia through the Dutch embassy to go to the Netherlands. So these are probably Serbian expats living in the Netherlands and, and Germany. We haven't sold the tickets. We're not doing policing at the stadium. In, in what sense is the Serbian FA's fault? How can they be punished for that? And I think that that is logical. It's, you know, it's... Punishment for things like that has to be individual. It, 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 you, know, you, you can't sort of um, collective punishment doesn't really work, and it only increases the, the sense of resentment and, and persecution. This is different in that it happened in a, in a stadium in Serbia, and therefore they, they do have responsibility for crowd control. Yeah, Jonathan, we'll leave it there. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. Jonathan's book about. Uh, if you're looking for a lot of background on the area and football, particularly in the area behind the curtain, travels in Eastern European football is one he wrote a number of years ago. Now. Um, what, where do you stand on this idea of it was interesting the points Jonathan was raising with regards to whether or not you just stop these matches happening and there there is present as he said there but Jonathan's worried about where does that end yeah. and when and 
is it right for teams to refuse to play each other? And more to the point, football has been used and sport in general can be used for good in certain situations and can help, this is very corny, but can help bring people together to a certain extent. They weren't really brought together between Serbia and Albania the other night, though. No, um, it's not going to in those those type of cases. I mean, uh, the point there about Serbia having played Croatia is, you know, it's fair enough. I mean, it's not as though these games can't happen. It's not as though you can't play a match and it can't, you know, go reasonably to order. Um, But I would would tend to think, no, they should be kept apart. I mean, you're asking, you're inviting. I mean, it's. I think that in practice, you're not going to actually get many of these cases. No. I mean, if you look throughout Europe, what what's who's going to object to playing each other? I don't think there's going to be too many. Probably Serbia and Albania mightn't even object to playing each other. I mean, clearly they, you know, they were prepared to do it. It's just that it turned out to be. To be impractical. Well, well, yeah, I tried to get the mention of Germany in there, Ken. I mean, a lot of countries have historically had issues with Germany. Uh-huh. Um, England might be another one, in fact. Yeah. Uh, good good football teams. Yeah. What, what if you were to make the argument, well, you know, we don't really want to play Germany because... We've been drawn with them, sure, but we don't want to play them because mm, things happened in the past. And really, it's, it's more about... Long, it's a long way in the past. I mean, it's not, it's not really in living memory anymore. Yeah. Listen, the, um, no, but the my French kind of screwed us back in 1798, so they, we'd they, rather not. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, it's still quite a raw issue here. They let us down badly, yeah. um, If you don't mind, UEFA, yeah. please. Good news, guys. Serbia's greatest sportsman, Novak Djokovic, has had a say on this one. Oh, he's come out... Well, I mean, well, he said a tweet 14 hours ago, so I'll just read it now. I assume it's about the well, it's bubbling tension. This, this is what he has to say. In, turns this is what Serbia's uh, biggest and most popular sportsman has to say in the context of the recent um, hooligan shame. Another great year in China, exclamation marks. This is thanks to all of my very supportive fans there and around the world. <laughs> <laughs> Global <Same> citizen, <laughs> Novak Djokovic. I like it. He's, he's transcending the petty um, mm. squabbles of his own land. It's good. Uh, Murph Kenwell can confirm it for me, so you're going to tell me that we'll win in Scotland, right? Uh, we're going to do them in Scotland. Look out, Jock McStrap. We're coming to get you. <laughs> That's it. Thanks very much for listening today. Thanks, lads. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank and you, you can Owen. check Thank out our you. website, secondcaptains.com. If you get a chance, follow us on Twitter, at secondcaptains. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 